Grab a seat and we'll get started. Uh, sheets are in front of you. If you are new this morning and have not found a table, please see Pat and Elaine in the front. They would love to get you connected to one of our breakout tables. That is really where um, the magic happens. That's the most important part of these mornings together is uh, in those table discussions. So we really want you to find that. If I've never met you before, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at PCPC. Would love to meet you afterwards, especially if you are new. Uh, let me pray for us, and we're going to dive in, continue with our series called Encounters with Jesus, as we look at Christ's own life and ministry as he interacted with people uh, who sometimes came to him and sometimes he came to them. Uh, today we're going to look at the story of Nicodemus. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, we, um, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his obedience to take on flesh, for the wonder of the incarnation that he lived among us, that he died for us, that he rose again for us. Father, this morning we pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus for who he is. I pray, Father, for those of us who've grown up in church our whole life, who think that we know who he is, that we would see him in a fresh way this morning. I pray for those this morning who do not know your son, who are seeking, who are inquisitive, who are asking questions. I pray this morning that this would be a great place, a wonderful opportunity to ask those questions of you. And Father, I pray that those questions would be answered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with faith this morning and with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be. John chapter 3. Um, how many of you were excited about the Super Bowl? It's hard as a Dallas Cowboy fan. You just want the stadium to implode somehow, us to be done with it. But yes, the Eagles won, and uh, we watched. The game it was a great game. My wife and I watched just the end of it. And then if uh, your marriage is much like mine, the only way that I can watch Stranger Things with my wife is if I watch This Is Us with her. And so we watched This Is Us. We watched Jack die. I know, I'm not giving anything away. It's the whole point of the show. So we watched him die. So we're amped. and We're like, man, it's late. I'm getting up the next morning to teach and assist. But we're, you know, this was intense. Super Bowl, This Is Us. And so Jimmy Fallon comes on. And that's kind of how we went to sleep, is watching Jimmy Fallon. And as we were watching Fallon, it, it just this struck me. And every once in a while I think about this. I'm like, this is such an odd cultural thing. That we have these things called talk shows that come on late at night. And we watch two people talk on television. And that's entertainment. And how odd that is. Like, we, we're, we're eavesdropping on a conversation. And this is what is selling millions of dollars worth of commercials and airtime. Why does this fascinate us so, so much? Have you ever wondered that? It's such an odd thing. And I think part of the reason is Jimmy Fallon's job, and like many of these talk show hosts, their job is to represent us and asking questions to these celebrities that we wish we could ask if we were there. 
And that's what makes it entertaining. It's what makes it interesting. Uh, probably even weirder than watching an interview is reading an interview. And I don't know how many of you have the habit of reading interviews, but every once in a while, there will be an article that's published. And rather than be an article or a column, what you're reading is an interview. And last year, there were two such interviews in the New York Times, one at Christmas and one at Easter, eavesdropping and the conversation between two men. The interviewer is a man named Nicholas Kristof. In many ways, you could say he is a cultural elite of our time. He is a well-respected journalist, been a journalist for the New York Times since 2001. He has won two Pulitzer Prizes for his coverage of the Tiananmen Square and genocide in Darfur. Uh, he is a humanitarian. Uh, he is active. He's written a bestseller. Uh, he is as successful as they come, and he hasn't just used his success for himself. He is uh, respected for the way that he has used his success for others. What's also fascinating about him is he is fixated on Christianity. And many of his articles, particularly if he writes an op-ed, has to do with religion. And so here he is, a series of interviews, one on Christmas Day, one on Easter. The first interview is titled, Am I a Christian, Pastor Tim Keller? He interviews Tim Keller Christmas Eve and asks him, Am I a Christian? This is what he asks. He says, Tim, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity. The virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, and so on. Since this is Christmas season, let's start with the virgin birth. Is that an essential belief, or can I mix and match? In other words, his whole point of both these articles, actually, is to say, look, I'm a good person. I admire Jesus and his teachings. I admire the work that he's done as a humanitarian, the example that he has provided for all of humanity, but I don't buy the virgin birth. I don't really believe in the resurrection. Can I still be a Christian? So here's coming to Pastor Timothy Keller, and he's saying, look, what's essential? Is it okay if I just mix and match some of these things? Maybe this morning that describes some of you. There could be certain aspects of the Christian faith that you've accepted and other parts that you're not so sure about, and you're wondering, just like Christoph, can you mix and match? What's essential? What's essential? Keller's response is this. He says, if something is truly integral to a body of thought, you cannot remove it without destabilizing the whole thing. This is why for, for um, some of you who might struggle with a virgin birth, without the virgin birth, there can be no resurrection. Because without the virgin birth, there can be no incarnation. And in, in other words, everything in Christianity is integral in and of itself, and it's all built upon built upon built upon brick upon brick upon brick. You can't pull one brick out, the whole thing crumbles. That's Keller's response. So Christoph goes on and says, okay, well, where does that leave people like me? Am I a Christian? A Jesus follower? A secular Christian? Can I be a Christian while doubting the resurrection? Keller's response is this. He says, if you don't accept the resurrection or other foundational beliefs as defined by the Apostles' Creed, I'd say you're outside of the boundary. It's in the New York Times. 
Okay, fast forward a few months. It's April. This is just last year, April 15th, 2017. This time, Christoph is not interviewing Pastor Timothy Keller, but the title of this interview is, Am I a Christian? President Jimmy Carter. Some of you might be thinking, okay, what, those two, how do those two things fit? <laughs> Tim Keller and Jimmy Carter, what you might not realize is Jimmy Carter is a Sunday school teacher now. Uh, that is what he's been doing for many years in Georgia at his Baptist church. So Christoph comes to President Carter and he asks him, with, Chris, with Easter approaching, let me push you on the resurrection. If you heard a report today from the Middle East of a man brought back to life with, after an execution, I doubt you'd believe it, even if there were eyewitnesses. So why believe ancient accounts written years after the events? President Carter responds, I would be skeptical of a report like you describe, but my belief in the resurrection of Jesus comes from my Christian faith and not from any need of scientific proof. Back up about 2,000 years, and you have another interview. Another cultural elite. This one not uh, respected because of his irreligion. This one respected because of his religion. Because in those days, to be cultural elite was to be religious. Well-respected, very successful, intelligent, well-educated. And his name was Nicodemus. This time he's not interviewing a pastor or a former president. He is interviewing Jesus himself. And this morning as we study John chapter 3, we are getting to eavesdrop on an interview. Cultural elite, a learned man, interviewing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because he respects him. Because he is captivated by the miracles he's performed and the things that he has taught. And he wants to know more. He wants to know more. I wonder, where are you this morning? Who is Jesus to you? Honestly, truly. Have you just grown up with him his whole life and you just accept him for who he is? Is that really what it takes, just to accept these things that we believe as plausible? Is that what it means to be a Christian? Others, you might find yourself like Nicholas Kristof or perhaps even Nicodemus. Captivated, perhaps you respect him, but are you really a Christian? And what does it mean to call yourself one? This morning, we're going to look at this in three ways. And what we'll see ultimately is that to be a Christian is to be marked by the covenant love of God and Jesus Christ. How does this mark play itself out? Well, the first way we're going to see is this. To be a Christian, you must be born again. To be a Christian, you must be born again. Nicodemus, verse 1, we're told he is a Pharisee, and he is a ruler of the Jews. He's got clout, he's got notoriety, he's got respect. Right? He is a Pharisee, means he is religious, he is respected not only for his religion, but also for his nationalistic politics. And yet here he is, finding himself moved by Jesus Christ. So verse 2, we're told this, that this man came to Jesus by night. John would not tell us that if it was not important. Why would Nicodemus come by night? Because he's coming in secret. 
He doesn't want other Pharisees or even other Jews to see that he, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, is coming to talk to this Jesus, this leader of this movement. Yet here he is. He's willing to risk all of that as reputation to come in secret at night. And he says to Jesus, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This tells us a little bit about how Nicodemus saw Jesus. First, he calls him Rabbi. He doesn't call him Lord or Savior. He calls him Teacher. Nicodemus is a rabbi. This is one rabbi having a conversation with another rabbi, talking about the scriptures, talking about what has happened. We also see behind this statement is Nicodemus' respect. Why does he respect him? Because of his teaching and because of his miracles. Yet at this point, he doesn't actually believe in Jesus, at least not that he's the Son of God. You see, it's possible to see, just like Nicholas Kristof, that Jesus is a good teacher, to respect him, to think that he has something to offer us as people and yet not actually be a Christian. It's possible to even recognize that Jesus has done some amazing things. What's so profound about the Gospels is nobody ever actually denies that Jesus performs a miracle. Have you ever noticed that? We do that now, 2,000 years later. We think there's no way any of that happened. But at the time, if you read each account, no one's actually saying this didn't happen. No, they all acknowledge it did happen. They have no idea what to do with it. So here's Nicodemus, recognizing that Jesus has done some pretty amazing things, and he does not know what to do with it. Perhaps that's you this morning. You recognize Jesus has done some amazing things, but what do you really do with that? And so he asks him, really, it's a, it's a veiled question, almost like a challenge. No one can do these things unless he's from God, unless God is with him. So he wants to know, how can that be? So here's Jesus' response, verse 3. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love this. We're going to see this time and time again this semester as we study Jesus. <laughs> Does he answer Nicodemus's question or his challenge? No. <laughs> no, he takes it a totally different direction. He says, look, you can't even see unless you've been born again. Okay, what does it mean to be born again? What's it mean to be born again? I, just this last week, I was meeting with a man in our church. He's new. Uh, he's from Canada. And he was telling me about a business deal that had fallen apart down here in Texas. And he was distraught because of all people, the person that scammed him told him that he was a born-again Christian. That was the phrasing he used, a born-again Christian. I wonder as we say that this morning, you hear that phrase, what pops into your mind? A lot of times the way that we think about a born-again Christian is, well, there's kind of uh, two sets of types of Christians. There's just Christians, but then there's the born-again kinds right? You can be just a Christian. That's good. But man, are you born again? I think that's what he kind of meant. Look, this guy said he was even born again. Yet what we see Jesus here saying is, look, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. 
No one. There's not two types. It's not Christians and born-again Christians. No, to be a Christian is to be born again. But what does that mean? What does that mean? That's what Nicodemus asks. Verse 4, he says, well, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what does it really mean to be a born-again Christian? What does that mean? It's not some kind of upper echelon type of Christianity. It's not the kind of thing where you say, look, I remember this crazy moment where I suddenly became born again. Some of you think that that's what it means to really, if you know you're a Christian, is if you have this crazy testimony. I meet with young adults all the time in our church, and I don't know if it describes you. I know it describes our young adults. I don't know why it is of them, but they all want crazy testimonies. Right? It's almost like a, a, a merit badge. Like, how crazy is your testimony? And I tell them, look, you might not have kids now, but when you do, you're going to have one prayer. Other than keeping your child alive, your prayer is that they're going to come to faith at a young age and never know a day that they do not know Jesus Christ. That's a good testimony. So being born again is not necessarily this crazy moment. Being born again is something completely different. What is it? What does Jesus mean? Well, he says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? How can somebody be born of water and be born of the Spirit? People have um, guessed at this for centuries. Anything from perhaps the water part as baptism, as um, graphic, as maybe it's literally talking about amniotic fluid. Spirit, obviously most people can recognize it's got to be the Holy Spirit. What do you do with water and spirit? What is he doing? Remember, this is one rabbi talking to another. And so for our New Testament ears, our Gentile ears, we might not catch the reference. But Jesus is one rabbi talking to another about the Old Testament. This is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Jesus is quoting Ezekiel. Ezekiel who prophesies and says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you the heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What does it mean to be born again? It's to be cleansed by Christ and to have our heart of stone removed and to have the Holy Spirit take up residence in us. To be born again is to be a new creation. It's to be recreated. It's the reason Paul says in Ephesians that in our sin we are dead. And through faith we come alive again. To be born again is to recognize in our sin we are dead. And it's going to take the Holy Spirit being sent on our hearts to take out a heart of stone to be given a new heart of flesh. 
to be recreated, to be given the ability to actually see Jesus Christ for who he is. And here's the deal about being born. You have nothing to do with it. You cannot birth yourself. That's only something God can do. By his power, by his might, and by his grace. He comes to you in the power of the Spirit. We call this regeneration. Titus says this, Titus 3, verse 4, he says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit has come upon your heart and taken out a heart of stone and put a heart of flesh unless he has initiated a work in you of regeneration, of recreation. Okay, what does that look like? How does that express itself in our life? How would we know that's beginning to happen? Well, the second thing that Jesus tells Nicodemus, their conversation continues. Verse 9, Nicodemus asks him, he says, how can these things be? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. If you heard Jesus saying this for the first time ever, how would you respond? How could this be? What are you talking about? And Jesus answers him. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things. Verse 11, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The second thing that we must have to be Christians is we must have faith. We must have faith. We must have belief. First, that we're regenerated, we are recreated, the Holy Spirit comes, and that begins to express itself in us in faith. In faith. What is faith? The Bible, Hebrews 11, defines it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What haven't we seen? What do we need to believe in? We need to believe that Jesus Christ came down and took on flesh. That he became fully God, fully man. And in his humanity, he was tempted and yet obeyed and was pure. In his humanity, he went to the cross and died in our place for our sins and rose again that we could have life. It's an incredible, unbelievable story that is absolutely true and takes faith to believe in. Jesus describes it this way, verse 13. He says, no one who has ascended into heaven except he who has descended to heaven, the Son of Man. That's the incarnation. That's the incarnation. That's recognizing that Jesus he is not just a good teacher, not just a moral example, but he is the son of the living God. God incarnate, descended from heaven, took, taking on flesh for us. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
Again, one rabbi talking to another. An Old Testament reference, this is the book of Numbers. When Moses in the wilderness lifted up the bronze serpent, and all who kept their eyes on the serpent lived. He's referencing that in light of his own crucifixion. It's the first time in the Gospel of John that the crucifixion is referenced. Saying, unless you look up and recognize that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Lifted up how? Not in his ascension, but must be lifted up on the tree. Must be hung on the cross. Unless you look on him and believe in him, you cannot have eternal life. And then comes what is arguably the most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16. And what many people don't recognize, even Christians, is that John 3.16 was not written in a vacuum, not written for the purpose of being put on a coffee mug or on a sign, but it was in the context of a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And here Jesus tells Nicodemus this, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God who took on flesh, who died on the cross for you and rose again that you could have life? All those who believe in him will be saved. What does that faith look like? What does it look like to believe in him? We're given a great example, again in the Old Testament. It's the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham. Abraham was promised a lot of things. And as he looked at his circumstances, he saw these promises not coming true. He was promised that he would be the leader of a nation, that a whole nation, in fact, nations would come from him, that he would have so many offspring. Uh, that he would start an entire uh, family tree that God would build a lineage behind. And yet he and his wife could not have kids. And so while he's hearing these promises, he, he's struggling with that. And he says to God in a vision, he says, I'm going to make a member of my household my own heir. And God comes to him and says, this man's not going to be your heir. Your son will be your heir. Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And then we're told that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice what it says. It doesn't say Abraham believed that there is a God. It doesn't say Abraham acknowledged that God exists. I think that's pretty clear to him at this point. God has come to him in a vision. You see, it's not enough that our belief, our faith, is just that there's a God. Not even enough that we might just acknowledge that certain things about him are true. But it says that Abraham believed the Lord. In other words, he trusted him. He was given promises and he believed that his promises are true. Remember, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They questioned the promises of God. Right? They question him. They question what he said. It's the core of every sin, right? What it means to have faith is to trust in the promises of God, to believe 
God is to believe in him, to believe in all that he is, what he says and what he has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not that there's just a God, but there is a God who loves you, who is for you, and who sent his son Jesus to die for you and to rise for you so that you could have life. Lastly, Nicodemus never really gets a chance to respond because Jesus just continues. But you wonder, what would have Nicodemus said to this? Notice verse 16, John 3.16 says, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I think a fair question for Nicodemus at this point, and for us as well, would be, well, why would I perish without Jesus? Why do I even need that in the first place? Why do I need to trust on him, look on him? Why do I need to believe what he says and believe his promises? Why does that matter? Why would I perish without Christ? I think Jesus anticipates this question. And really, in verse 17 until the end, verse 21, he tells us that part of being a Christian is that we would walk in the light, that we would come to the light, light being a key theme of the book of John. Verse 17, we're, we're given this warning. Nicodemus is giving a warning, and we are giving it through him. Jesus tells Nicodemus, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, why are people condemned? Why are we perish without Jesus? Because we love the darkness. We love the darkness. We love to remain in the darkness. The book of John begins by saying that Jesus Christ came to the world and the world rejected him. And this theme has continued now, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He's saying, look, the reason why people reject me, the reason why people reject me is not because they have just doubt or they're too smart for their own good or they have a baggage from the church. Now, the reason, the ultimate reason that people reject Jesus Christ is because they love the darkness more than the light. I um, have told this story before. It's too fun not to tell again. I... Um, Shortly after college, I convinced two of my buddies uh, to go backpacking with me, uh, one of whom is actually a member of our church now. I won't say his name, but it rhymes with Aaron Cave. And we, um, we went backpacking in uh, Big Bend. And these guys had never been before. I'd grown up backpacking. And so we were out there, and uh, it was a great time until... Uh, his name was Jacob and Aaron, realized that uh, we were just about four miles from our car. And we were supposed to be backpacking for another couple of days. But when they realized that we were just four miles from the car, there was a mutiny. And they said, we're not doing this anymore. I want to sleep in a nice bed and take a hot shower. And so we're going as fast as we can to the car. We're driving to the nearest hotel. Now, at this point, it was probably about 3.30 in the afternoon. Now, if you know anything about West Texas, you know that it gets dark fairly early. And by the time we made it to the car, the sun had set. And if you know anything else about West Texas, you know that the nearest motel is pretty far away. And by the way, it's not very nice. 
<laughs> and we drove until about midnight <laughs> in the middle of West Texas where there was no ambient light. And by the way, it was pretty cloudy. And it was really dark. And we were the only ones out there, except for a bunch of deer, a ton of deer. And for about two hours, seriously, two hours, I was driving way too fast because I figured I might as well just drive fast, I guess, hoping not to hit a deer as they crossed the road. And I would only see them for the split second that they crossed our headlights. One of the most fearful times I have ever been in a car. I tell that story to tell this. It's, it's a silly story, but it's, it gets to the point that at the moment, it seemed that the wisest thing for us to do was to step out into the darkness and drive to the nearest motel. It could I mean, that was the stupidest thing. We could have died, seriously. We could have been killed. And yet, that's what it seemed like we should do. And the further that we got into the darkness, we couldn't turn back, right? We'd gone too far. So we just got to keep pressing on. And rather than slow down, my rationale is, well, I just, let's get it over with. I'm going to drive faster. <laughs> Brothers, this is what our sin does to us. Jesus tells us we love the darkness. We love it. We prefer it to him. And that's ultimately why we reject him. It's ultimately why we reject what he's done for us. Is because deep down, our sin is captivating to it. It's held us captive but what the Gospel of John also tells us and where we're going to end is that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light that has overcome the darkness. He has conquered every sin. What that means for you this morning is I don't know how dark you feel like your sin is. And perhaps for some of you this morning you feel like my sin is actually too dark to even call myself a Christian. And it's hidden. And I'm ashamed I want you to hear these words from Jesus. These are his words to you. Verse 20, he says, Everyone does wicked things, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Maybe that describes you this morning. The reason why you're not coming to the light of Christ is because you don't want to be exposed. It's right where Satan wants you. It's where Adam and Eve were. For fear of being exposed, they hid themselves from one another, and they hid themselves from God. The good news of the gospel is this, is the light of Christ has come. And it is shining light on the darkest recesses of your heart. And yes, you are being exposed, but as the light exposes your sin, it overwhelms it. It overwhelms it to the point where there is no darkness anymore. The light always overcomes the darkness. First John this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus tells us, verse 21, that whoever does, not, does what is true comes to the light so that we may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. To be a Christian means that you are coming to the light of Christ. The light of Christ has overwhelmed the deepest, darkest parts of your sin. And by the way, that is a continual reality for the believer. Martin Luther said, the Christian life is one of daily repentance. 
the daily practice of exposing the darkness in our hearts and allowing the light of Christ to overcome it. What did it look like for Nicodemus? What was Jesus' answer if he was going to ask, as Nicholas Kristof did, am I a Christian, Jesus? Well, we don't know a lot from the Bible. We do know that eventually in the Orthodox Church, Nicodemus became Saint Nicodemus. In other words, they are convinced that Nicodemus is a Christian, and here's why. Nicodemus came in secret to Jesus again, this time some years later, when Jesus was dead. Nicodemus and a man named Joseph of Arimathea came to his tomb at great cost to their own reputation and at great expense to their own pocketbooks. They brought 75 pounds of myrrh and spices for his burial. I might not know a lot about Israeli burial customs in the ancient Near East, but 75 pounds is a lot. It's excessive. It's extravagant. It's the kind of burial that's meant for a king. Here's Nicodemus, no longer calling Jesus rabbi. He's calling him king, and he's honoring him and worshiping him as the king who's died for him. Do you believe in King Jesus, that he died for you, that he rose for you, that you might have life? To be marked by his love, his covenant love for you is what it means to be a Christian. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we pray that these marks would be evidence in us of your work in us. We pray for our conversations now. I pray whether we have been Christians and called ourselves Christians our entire lives or whether we are new to faith or whether we're skeptical about faith, I pray that you would be with our conversations now. May we be confronted with the radical love of Christ, the light of Christ to shine in our own dark places his death, his resurrection, his incarnation for us. Father, fill our hearts with faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.